Well, I'm sure many of you are like me. You just want to sit in that moment of worship. It's such a good thing to lift our voices together to the Lord like that. Welcome to Grace Community Church for about the 10th time this morning, I think. My name is Brad Talley. I am the teaching elder at Grace, and we're so glad that you chose to worship with us this morning. Uh, Just a couple of uh, notes. Last week, we had uh, somewhat of an emergency meeting about the Hunzikers to provide information that we had been working with for a long time. And people said, we need this. We got it. Still wasn't enough. If you're a home group leader, we sent the word to you that we were going to have our primary offering today, the benevolence offering, to go for the Hunzikers. But we are still waiting to make sure that they're going to be able to get here. So we may do that next month. And even when we do, you can still give to the Benevolence Fund if you would like to, but we're just going to make our end-of-the-month meeting uh, or our end-of-the-month offering one that would be designated especially for the Hunzikers if indeed the Lord allows them to come. God is sovereign and God is good. And if He wants them to be here then they'll be here. If not, then we will have done our best. Chris Pope has worked tirelessly on this. Chris and Benita and several of the mission committee members. So, um, again, it's in the Lord's hands, and we hope that they will be here probably for at least a short time. They will anyway, but we're hoping to see them. And with... Joe is originally, as I mentioned last week, from Switzerland, uh, German-Swiss. He's an Italian now. He's married to an Italian. And so, with that international theme, let's talk about the Olympics. Is that a smooth segue or what? Um, actually, with Italy, you'd want to talk more about the World Cup than you would uh, the, 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 the Olympics. But in just over two months, right at, at, at present, the 2016 Olympics are scheduled to be in Rio. In Brazil, we don't know if they're going to go forward or not. There are a lot of health concerns. And so there are a lot of people calling, let's move them, let's postpone them, whatever. Uh, but who doesn't love the Olympics? Look, I'm never, I'm never going to turn on television and watch track and field. I know that a lot of you guys participated in track and field. And did I hear a boo over there? <laughs> it's usually a little later in the uh, message that I start hearing boos, but I mean, introduction, come on, Chad. So, but I, I know a lot of you enjoy it, but you have to watch during the Olympics. You're just mesmerized. Everybody tunes in for the Olympics. At the 2012 London Olympics, uh, Charlie Houchin from Raleigh, North Carolina. Charlie, whose mother teaches at Trinity Academy, where Allison does, won a gold medal. Uh, He's a swimmer. He won in the 4 by 200 relay. Won a gold medal. And not long after he won that medal, he was speaking to the kids at Trinity, to the students at Trinity, saying, uh, you need to persevere in your Christian faith in order to win a great prize from Jesus. The modern-day Olympics are a good bit different than the ancient Olympics in Athens. All the towns and cities around the Roman Empire would send their athletes to, uh, to Athens, and so much was riding on, not only on their participation in the Olympics, 
but their winning their events. It was for the glory of the town as well as uh, for the athletes. There was a rigorous supervised training program for all athletes that lasted at least nine months. And the last month, all the athletes were uh, gathered in Athens, and they were put under very strict supervision. It was just about the only instance in which if you were a Roman citizen, you could be beaten. And there was nothing you could do about it. They would beat you if you didn't train according to standards. So they were under incredible scrutiny. Rules had to be followed to the exact specification. I mean, all the way to the most minute details were given because so, or were considered because so very much was at stake. So Charlie Houchin was a gold medal winner. But you know what? If he'd been a silver medal winner, that would have still been a big deal. It's like, ladies and gentlemen, we have the second fastest man in the world here today in our service. You would be all excited about a silver medal winner. Not so in the ancient Olympics. If you came in second place, you disgraced your your entire community, even your family. You'd go home, Mom, I lost. Don't, does somebody hear something around here? Even their mother wouldn't speak to him, for goodness sakes. I mean, it was a horrible thing to lose. In fact, in that last month in Athens, people would check out the competition. And if someone was absolutely certain he or she would not win then they'd sneak away in the middle of the night. You know, that's pretty bad for being the second fastest person in the world, in the known world. Our our text today, Hebrews 12, verses 1 to 2, uses an athletic metaphor to make a spiritual point. And there are several other places in the New Testament that use such metaphors and analogies. And before we even get to Hebrews 12... One and two, I want us to look at 1 Corinthians 9, 24 to 27 in light of the cultural context of the ancient Olympics. Let me tell you where I found out about this. It's not from some commentary. Many years ago when I was at TVR, I was sick for about a week in the summer. I mean, I had this 101 fever and just lasted all week and I was miserable. I wanted so bad to get out of the house, but I couldn't. But Linda had this... Really interesting history book from her studies at Appalachian State. And so I just started up flipping through it. It was a secular book. And and I started reading about the Olympics. And all of a sudden, Scripture came alive when I understood the context in which these verses were written. Now look at this in the light of what I've just told you. Look at this text. Do you not know that in a race, all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body. That literally, he's saying, I beat my body black and blue. That's the way athletes, everything was at stake. I mean, it's like if you win, it is amazing. But if you lose, it's just as bad as it's good if you, if you win. I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. You get a sense, don't you, of what was at stake 
when the, what is at stake when the Christian life is compared with the Olympics or in this case at Corinth, the Isthmian Games. Uh, Corinth was on a little isthmus, a little, little stretch of land between two other larger bodies of land. And they would hold these games every two years and they were second in importance only to the games that were held in Athens. Um, the metaphor works in so many ways. One winner, extraordinary self-discipline, an eternal prize. And the metaphor breaks down in so many ways. Only one winner, reliance on self and the role of the witnesses. What were the witnesses all about in, in Hebrews 12, 1 and 2? We're going to talk about that. And someday we're going to talk about, started to today, but I thought, well, we'll wait. The, the benefits and the limitations of metaphors and analogies and similes and allegory that you see in Scripture... And the writers of Scripture used it for a particular reason and they recognized the benefits, but they also understood the limitations of those rhetorical and literary devices. For now, we're ready to read our text, Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. Actually, we've been preparing for this since September when we started our study in the book of Hebrews. And really specifically for these two verses, these last three weeks as we've been looking in Hebrews chapter 11. The great cloud of witnesses that we will read about include all the exemplars of faith that we read about in Hebrews 11 and many, many more. So as is our custom, I'll ask you to stand, if you would, for the reading of Scripture It is a short text today, Hebrews 12, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus the founder or originator or pioneer and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Let's pray. Our Father, um, It is a day when we have already committed our hearts to beholding our God. On this day, may we see Jesus high and exalted, lifted up. And in this text that tells us so much about how we are to live, may we understand that it's only accomplished when you live through us. So, Lord, please... Open our hearts today and pour your word into us. And may we not only receive but respond to the truth that you have prepared before the foundation of the world to share with us on this day from your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you and be seated. In my early Years of ministry, I used to uh, prepare a sermon by reading the English text and just meditating, praying, Lord, what do you want me to see out of this? And, and just looking and thinking, oh, yeah, I think that's, that's, that's pretty good. So my sermon was based primarily on what I thought about the text. And I know that 
Look, I know that a lot of you, that's the way you come to Scripture. And I, I'm by no means am I trying to discourage you. What, what I'm saying is the Lord has shown me over the years that through training, through discipline, training and study, that there's a lot more to it than just what meets the eye. Like, for instance, the, the analogy or the, the metaphor of the Olympics and all that it involved in the, in the early days, the ancient years. No amount of prayer can overcome a lack of careful preparation, connecting a text with the context surrounding it, and understanding the historical grammatical impact of the text on that particular sermon. Of course, it works the other way around. No amount of preparation can overcome a lack of spiritual preparation, a prayer, and of, and of asking God to guide and know exactly what the congregation wants or what the congregation needs. What I love so much about preaching is so many people say, you know, here's how the Lord spoke to me. And it's not exactly what I said. I didn't say that. But it's the Holy Spirit taking the word and doing the very thing that you need in your heart and mind when it comes. And so you preach the sermon back to me. And I'm thinking, wow, wish I'd have thought of that. That's really good. You know, that's so the Lord does that for us as we are careful about, as we're being faithful and honest to his word. So before we attempt to apply this text to 2016, we're going to spend a little time seeing how the author sets up his primary point, tying into all that has gone before. And as with many texts in scripture, there is some debate about the exact meaning. Some of the debate is theological in nature. People have different theological uh, beliefs, and so consequently that impacts the way they look at a text. And then others, just because it doesn't really say, and so it's open a little bit for interpretation, a bit of speculation. So let's take a look at these two verses. I want you to look at these two verses, which comprise one long sentence, and see if you can spot the main verb and the primary exhortation of the passage. If you're just looking at it, if you're just looking at it, are we, it's a working, there we go. Well, I've aced myself on this. I didn't have another slide up there before this one. Look, here is the main point of the message. Let us run the race. Now, if you look at this without those highlights, very likely you're going to think the main point of this text is looking to Jesus. In fact, that's sort of the title of the message. But the main verb in this text is let us run the race, run the race specifically. But the author identifies with the people who are going through this great suffering in Rome, these church members. And he says, let us run the race, just as all of those in Hebrews 11 that we talked about ran their race. And then he says, and one of the ways we do that is look to Jesus. Everything else in this, in this text modifies, let us run the race. Shockingly, the author begins this part of the text with, therefore. Well, not so shockingly. I mean, every time he's saying, therefore, now, but, okay, because. And it's just one long argument. Um, on the basis of all those who trusted God, especially in difficult times, we need to do the same thing. We need to run our race. We need to prepare to serve the Lord 
unto the end, being faithful. We're surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. Uh, The picture is of an Olympic stadium that is full of spectators watching a great race. In the ancient times, whenever you heard, heard the word cloud, it was usually talking about a great number of people. It would be easy to conclude that all believers, all the believers who have gone before us are watching from heaven, cheering us on or maybe giving the raspberry like Chad did a while ago. You know, boo. If, if we mess up, you're, you're, you're cheering. Yeah, go, go, go. But that's probably not what's going on here. Most likely the witnesses are those who have gone before and have given testimony to the faithfulness of Jesus rather than those who are sitting in the bleacher cheering us on. Some have said it's as if the witnesses are all right there at the starting line saying, you can do this. Look, look, I know what you're about to go through. I've been through this. You can do it. Come on, hang in there. Others say they're at the finish line, welcoming them into heaven. Look, I think about this. I have no explanation. I hear over and over and over when someone dies, they see their mother, they see a brother, a lost one. How, how do you, over and over and over I hear that. Maybe that's part of the deal. Maybe that's it. I, I have no explanation for it. I, every once in a while I hear about someone who says Jesus, but most of the time it's mama or <laughs> You know, someone like that, perhaps that's, I don't know what it is, but I doubt the people are in the, in the stands either cheering or booing based on our performance. It sort of moves to the idea of praying to them. And of course, there's nowhere in Scripture that we're told to pray to any individual other than Jesus Christ. He is the only mediator between God and man. So more than likely, though, These witnesses that the struggling men of women of faith in Hebrews 11 possessed, these witnesses are calling us to action in Hebrews 12. As F.F. Bruce says, it is not so much they who look to us, but us who look to them for encouragement. Since the Lord enabled the Old Testament saints to finish their races well, he's encouraging us to run our races well. The Greek word for race is agon, A-G-O-N, from which we get our English word agony. This life is a great struggle, a battle to mix metaphors. It's used here as a contest or a race. And if you were preparing at that level, how many of you, anybody ever run a marathon? I'm sure there are some marathon, okay. Several marathon runners in here. There, there was some agony somewhere along the way. Uh, whether in preparation or in the... Uh, yes, just yes, it was agony. Uh, all, all the way. And, and this life can feel like that sometimes. Uh, that's difficult in a day where everything is just wonderful. And you deserve and you should have and... Let's get past this problem. Let's not think about the bad stuff. It's used here as a contest or a race. It's quite helpful to compare the Christian life with a race that requires intense preparation and focus with one's eyes on the goal of winning the race. Here is one of those places, though, where once again the metaphor breaks down. None of us is seeking to win at the expense of others. 
I'm not saying, man, I just, just, if I can just be better than Peter and Beth, I, I, I've, I, that's all I want. I just want the Lord to say, you were better than Peter and you were better than Beth. We're not looking at, in fact, we are called to help one another. Hebrews 10, 25, he's like, if you don't go to church, you're betraying your brothers and sisters in Christ. Help one another. Win this race. Each of us, though, has a specific race to which we have been called. It's not that my race is more or less difficult than yours, but it is different. It's the one to which God has called me, and yours is the one to which he has called you. Remember from Hebrews 11, some were delivered from the mouths of lions, and some were sawn in two. Every race is different. But how we are to run the race boils down to the same three principles that are given in our text. Let's think about the ways we're told to run the race that God has given us. Beginning with, by faith, lay aside distractions and rule over sin in your life. Here's another reason to read scripture in context. Hebrews 12, 1 through 4 this whole section along in here is one of those places where people love to just pull this out and, and, and say, let's go with this. And there's a whole lot about discipline and control and all the things that you do and you don't do. But it's all to be done by faith. Not only have we finished this entire chapter about faith, but he says at the end, Jesus is the originator and finisher, perfecter. He's the pioneer. He's the perfecter of our our faith. So by faith, lay aside distractions and rule over sin in your life. In a few months, we're going to watch athletes compete against one another wearing the thinnest, skimpiest outfits that they are allowed to wear. Uh, Believe it or not, those outfits are far more modest than the ancient Olympics. Most of them participated in the buff. I mean, no clothes at all. It's interesting to me. I don't know what to make of this. And and look, I am grateful for the fact that I'm allowed to think out loud in, in our services. Although the elders might say, not such a good idea after this. Look, it's interesting to me that the Lord would use this as an analogy for the Christian life. It's the word of God. I, that's all I can say. He's saying, you know how those athletes do? You do that in your Christian life. Two questions for you and for me. One, what distractions and or sins hinder you in your walk with the Lord? What distractions and sins hinder you in your walk for the Lord? And two, why is it so difficult to cast them off? World-class athletes do their absolute best to put aside anything that would hinder them from accomplishing their goal. Yet we all know stories of unusually gifted men and women who throw their lives away because they're unable to rein in their own fleshly impulses. They don't discipline their behavior. And they participate in things that are clearly self-destructive. 
One of the difficulties of answering the question about distractions is that there are so many things in life that God gave us to enjoy that are not inherently long, wrong, but they get in the way of running our race. If they distract us from our goal, we can quickly find ourselves off course. It's always heartwarming when they give a story behind an athlete. Oh, this athlete, you know, grew up in hard times and, and the village got together and they sent the parents. And you see the parents up in the stands and you just, you know, you find yourself rooting for this person no matter where they're from. But if you see this lady running a sprint, waving to her parents, one thing we know, right? She, she's not going to win. She's distracted. There's no way. How many races have been lost with, just with this? Just a, little, just a little turn of the head. Just to see where the competition is. Furthermore, if you're an athlete who runs the 400 meter and you stay up every night until 3 to 4 a.m. watching chariots of fire for inspiration, it's not likely that you're going to perform to standard. So what are the distractions that are not sinful in and of themselves but hinder you nonetheless? Netflix, binge watching anyone, Facebook, Golf or some other sport, music, friends. Again, God gave us all of these things to enjoy, but our culture is increasingly designed to focus our attention right here, baby. Look in the mirror. You're looking at pure gold. Everybody tells you that. Our culture is not designed for us to run our race in such a way that we hear the Lord say, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter, you, enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. In addition to distractions that hinder us, there are personal sins that cause us to stumble. And sometimes they're a result of distractions that get us off course or the distractions bring out our sinful tendencies. I might have... Expressed a little anger in our home when Carolina lost the national championship. I, you know, I don't know. I, worse with the Super Bowl. But um, it, so, I mean, we constantly, we constantly check, check Instagram to see how many people loved our picture and commented on them. I mean, the anger that we thought that was under control is just as out of bounds as our tee shot on 14. Or as the... Idiot driver in the right lane who just cut us off. I mean, we had it under control, but lust, pornography, alcohol, prescription meds, a compulsion to gossip, bitterness over a wrong that someone has committed against us. These all cling to us and trip us up just as if it's one thing to see, have a distraction, you know, be waving to the fans when you're running. It's another thing, there's this great big rock that's right in your way and you don't even know. And you trip over it and break your leg. You can't even finish the race. So what are we to do? Well, first let's just think about the distractions that hurt our performances in the race that God has given us to run. I want, you, I want to challenge you this week to evaluate. Spend some time and evaluate how you live your life. How you spend your time. 
I mean, think about what you do and what you're missing because of the, the choices that you make. I mean, you can't do everything, right? I know some of you are natured a lot like I am, and you just want to do everything. But there, there comes a point in your life where you're like this kid in a room that is just loaded with toys and video games. And finally, you just sit down in the middle of the room and it's like, I don't know what to do. There's just too much. Some things have to go in order for you to run this race the way God has designed for you to run it. What about your diet and exercise? I'm speaking from a morally superior position, you understand. (laughs) Not. (laughs) There's a call for discipline in the call for us to throw off everything that weighs us down, such as excessive entertainment or excessive work. Now, don't get legalistic in your approach to this because God has given us all things to enjoy. We'll develop this sometime. But look, if, if you were to give your child a toy or, a, or some kind of a gift, and he were to say, Oh, Father, oh, Mother, I am unworthy. Here, take this gift. I shouldn't. You'd say, like, Play with the thing. That's what gives me joy. God delights in us enjoying this creation that He has given us. But if we're not careful, we begin to love the creation over the Creator. And it requires discipline by faith to lay aside distractions and to rule over sin in our lives. In addition to the more benign distractions that keep us from being our best, the author also tells us to deal with sin. If if there's a particular sin that gives you trouble... And I'm going to go out on on a limb and say there is a particular sin that gives each of you trouble. used to think that this text said the sin that distracts us. Sin distracts us. But if there's a particular sin that gives you trouble, deal with it. Quit trying to justify it or to hide it. Tell someone who will be able to pray with you, someone you trust who will be able to pray with you and will be willing to hold you accountable. Not just someone who says, yeah, I know I struggle with the same thing. This really is just tough. As many times as you indulge sin, repent and forsake it. When you repent, if you repent honestly before the Lord, it's going to sound like something like this. God, I don't ever want to do that again. Please help me. I'm weak. Help me. Not, oh, well, Lord, not good. There I go again. Um, Repent. Forsake it. Do do you mean a hundred times a month? I mean a hundred times a week if it's necessary. Never accept sin as inevitable. Even though we will sin to the day we die. Don't accept a particular sin as inevitable. Lose this phrase from your repertoire. That's just the way I am. It's about Jesus. 
we want the Lord to conform us to the image of Christ. Hebrews 11 shows us that God has designed that weak men and women should glorify him by faith. It is for many of us a long road and it requires perseverance and patience, which leads us to the next point of application. By faith, persevere in spite of the times. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. So clearly the race in Hebrews 12 is more a marathon than it is a sprint. You see people who shoot out of the gate very quickly in the Christian life, but pretty soon they're just completely worn out. Pace yourself doesn't mean, oh, don't get too excited about this or that. It just means to persevere, to hang in there, even when you're exhausted and you feel like you can't keep going. No way these guys that did the marathon could have gotten through it if they had finally just said, you know, I I think I've just had enough for today. You just persevere and get get through it. Look, there are times in your life as a follower of Christ when everything just feels so right. And there are times in your life when everything seems so wrong. The world seems so wrong, even if Jesus is right. But take courage. Jesus is right beside you in those moments. And he's using those, using this difficult period of your life to mold you into the image of Christ, who completed his race exactly as God designed it. And he struggled to do that when he said, Father, please take this cup from me if there's any other way. But he completed the race. When you hear the admonition to endure or persevere, you may have your an image in your mind of somebody, you know, uh, it, that you've seen in a movie or, or you re- somebody you read about long ago. Back in the old days, it, it, it was an honor to set your face like a flint into the wind, like a rock, and just stay the course. It was an honor back then. Now, if you hang in a tough situation, people think you're crazy. Really? You think God would want you to stay with him and he doesn't make you happy? Really? You don't think God wants you to be happy? Divorce him. I'm sure the Lord is fine with that. I don't even know how you just read the English text and know that. That didn't sound the way I wanted it to, by the way. That sounded, when I talked about that, I thought, oh, that sounds arrogant. I don't mean it that way. I was trying to make a point about reading, not reading into the text your own personal ideas and opinions about a text, but to dig deep and see what's there so you can see see the point that God is making uh, for you. Look, just in our day, we justify walking away from something for the, for the smallest of reasons, and we never grow. We never grow personally. We never grow in character if we don't persevere in something that's tough. Look, I understand if you work for a boss who is just an absolute jerk, I understand you don't have to stay in that job. But there are so many things that the world just says, walk away. And scripture says, just hold your position. Persevere. Hang in there. 
unfortunately, almost nothing in our current culture teaches us to persevere, to endure. And look, if, you, if you're playing at church, when it gets a little bit tougher just, just down the road, you're not going to play any longer. You're going to walk away. And this whole thing is about hang in there with Jesus because if you walk away from him, there are eternal consequences. Don't do that. You know what? In spite of what our culture presses us toward, God is gracious to help you to be in a place where you have no choice but to persevere. He's, he, he just, he's like that. He puts us in that place. You think of all the problems that you've gotten yourself out of by picking up the phone and making a call to somebody you know who can help you in a really tough spot. One day you're not going to be able to do that. God's going to say, I love you and it's time for you to turn your eyes to me. And I'm not on speed dial. You're going to have to pursue me. You're going to have to. And I do this because I love you. J.I. Packer said this. The Christian life is essentially a pathway of weakness along which God leads us, sustaining and strengthening us for service as we go. That may seem a bit contradictory to the point of perseverance, which conjures up the, the images of, uh, of a stiff upper lip or of bucking up when the times are hard. But if we seek to persevere in our own strength, we're not going to make it. I mean, look, you get through hard times just because you do. You don't have an option. But if we're going to persevere in this particular race, this Christian life that God has called us to run, it's going to be his strength where it's not going to happen. Remember, it is by faith we persevere. And faithful deeds are more about God's faithfulness than they are about our obedience. Although obedience always follows faith. The life of faith is about getting up when you fall. I'm going to go out on a, another limb and say, every one of you is going to fall. Maybe this week. You're just going to, you're going to think, ah, man, blew it again. And repentance requires that you acknowledge it before the Lord. But when you fall, get up. Let God pick you up and move you on. Many of the people in Hebrews 12 failed spectacularly. They did it royally, messed up in ways you can't imagine. But they got up and they turned their eyes to the promises of God. And that happens to be the admonition in these two verses and the focus of this last point. By faith, keep your eyes on Jesus. All right, all of you who work in the children's ministry, elementary school teachers, homeschoolers, included homeschool teachers included, complete this sentence for me. One, two, three. Eyes on me. What are you trying to do? Pull the focus of the kids in. If their attention is everywhere in the world, they're not going to be getting what you're supposed to be, what they're supposed to be learning. They're not going to hear you. They're focusing on someone else. Not that you're Jesus or anything, but still, when you call for your children's attention, it's for everyone's good. When eyes in the classroom begin to wander, learning begins to wane as distractions become the student's focus. So I want us to read this text again. Therefore, 
Since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of those who witness to the faithfulness of God in tough times. Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. Despising the shame and is seated At the right hand of God. Earlier when I asked you to identify the main focus of the text or the main verb. The title of the message might have thrown you off a bit. Eyes on Jesus. Certainly run the race is the primary verb. Just like make disciples is the primary focus of of the great commission. But if we run, you can run a race by putting aside distractions. You can run a race by persevering when it's hard. But you cannot run this race without your eyes on Jesus. Jesus is the originator, the leader, the founder of our faith. Although all of the individuals in Hebrews 11 fell short at some point in their lives, Jesus never did. He completed his race. He's both our creator and redeemer, building the faith within us. He's also the finisher or perfecter of our faith, completing the good work that he began in us. When you look at yourself and you say, I'm just not going to make it. Quit looking at yourself. Put your eyes on Jesus. Who says you're forgiven. I love you. Get up. Let me help you up. When you're faced with what you thought would be an absolutely impossible trial. Look to the one who endured an excruciating form of execution. That for many was more shameful than painful. The psychological difficulty of crucifixion for some was worse than the physical and we cannot even imagine the pain of crucifixion. Most, if not all, those who were crucified were crucified naked. I've, I've thought about the connection lately with this part of Jesus' crucifixion. Adam and Eve were created and in the garden... Before sin, they were naked and unashamed. The instant they sinned, what is the first thing they did? Covered up. There was some shame associated with their nakedness. Jesus, it's appropriate that when Jesus took all of our sins and took all of our shame and the wrath of God was on him, that he was crucified naked. He endured it for us and he waits to welcome us into heaven, pure and spotless and with robes, if you're worried about it. That's part of the joy that he kept in his heart, knowing that he was glorifying God, fulfilling the Father's plan and sat down at the right hand of God. He would sit down at the right hand of God where he ever makes intercession for us. He offered his blood as the perfect sacrifice. And he lives to say, Father, this one is mine. I died for this one. 
don't listen to the accusation of the accuser. He's perfect. She's pure. Not on his or her own, but because of me. As you run the race that God has designed for you, keep your eyes on Jesus, the originator and finisher of our faith. Let's pray. Dear, dear brother, dear sister, when you are faced with trials that threaten to overwhelm you, look to Jesus. When temptation seeks to cause you to stray from the path, look to Jesus. When someone you love deeply turns against you and seeks to cause you harm, look to Jesus. He knows how you feel. When life is spinning out of control, look to Jesus. When your child says that he hates you, look to Jesus. When life is as good as it possibly gets, maybe then especially, look to Jesus. When your heart is broken, look to Jesus. When you're filled with doubt about which path to take, look to Jesus. And when panic over finances or job security seek your full attention, look to Jesus and ask him to calm your heart. Jesus, we... We're so grateful that you are a great high priest who knows what we have been, what knows our temptations because you were tempted in every point yet without sin. And so you stand ever ready to pray for us, to intercede for us, and to live in us and strengthen and guide us and cause us as your father does to be made in your image. Holy Spirit, turn our hearts and our eyes to Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. If you would, please stand.